You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Hello everyone and welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your guest host, Brad Philpott, subbing in for Spanners, who's feeling poorly today, but I'm told is being very brave about it. Spanners should be back for the Sunday race review with Matt, Catman and Antonia, but today we're answering your questions as well as discussing all the latest news about the budget cap and Honda's, quote, return to F1. But first, I must remind you that we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind support of our partners. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. Joining me today is Matt Two rumpets. Still calculating Max's fuel loads in Q3 at Singapore to get it exactly right. And Chris Stevens. Hey, Brad, I've got my little letter opener thing that posh people have got ready to open some mail. I'm looking forward to delving into this mailbag. And we're going to start off with your questions. Um, remember, you can always submit feedback to our email address, which is feedback at mistapex.net. But let's start with a question from Sherry that trips up a lot of people, including experienced and long-standing fans. Uh, so this will be a good one to cover. Sherry asks, could you explain how F1 is governed? I'm a new fan and trying to sort out how the FIA, F1, Liberty Media, the circuits and the teams all fit together to decide what the rules are and who can join the grid is very confusing to me. Um, so guys, this is actually something that I find confusing at times. But let me just lay out what I think, how this works. If you bring a bunch of friends to a go-kart track for an evening, you're like the organizer and it's your event. But once you get there, you kind of hand over to the circuit officials and they run it. They enforce the rules. They give you a black flag. Um, but ultimately, you can choose to take your business elsewhere and find someone else to run it for you. Am I somewhere in the ballpark? Brad, I'd like you to imagine, if you can, a circus. I'd like you to add an alien invasion and then some zombies to it. And I think that approaches the current level of governance that we're looking at. This is obviously a bit of a joke. You're on, you're, you've got the right idea. The FIA is in charge of the sport, the rules, the entries, and the safety. What we think of as F1, FOM, is in charge of the commercial side. So that would be working with promoters, ticket sales, merchandise, so on and so forth, including, most importantly, TV rights. And, and that would be Liberty Media as well, because they own FOM. So they are the ones that are in charge of dealing with all those, uh, all those things. But um, correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, but they also handle all the, the, the circuit deals as well. I know the, um, the question kind of links in the circuits and the teams. The circuits are like completely separate. They make their deals with FOM and, and Liberty. Right. Uh, so this is correct. Um, on the commercial side, 
they will have a local promoter that works with, well, in the case of South Africa, I read an interesting article. About 27 different people needed approval uh, yeah, for that one. it was a bunch of different government agencies and different commercial entities, including the track itself, plus a local promoter, all had to be on the page. And then on top of that, the FIA is going to have to come in and say that the track and the facilities are up to, up to spec before approval would be given for a race to, to go on. And I don't think the that there is that level of local um, delegacy to go through for like every circuit. Like I doubt Spa has that many, you know, local enforcers and 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 hoops to have to jump through to get through to the Grand Prix. So the yeah, question I, the question Sherry's asked here is is something that a lot of people are very confused about because you guys have already just spoken for a minute or so. And I'm already slightly confused because when we think of Formula One as an entity, it is many different moving parts with some important decision makers making decisions in different areas. So maybe when when people are getting annoyed at the FIA, we're talking about they're getting annoyed at rules not being enforced properly rather than maybe the format moving forward or or the kind of tracks that Formula One decides to go to. Am I, am I on the right track? Yeah, so the number one thing you see on Twitter is people adding the FIA Twitter account and saying, oh, sort this out, when it's got nothing to do with them whatsoever. A lot of the time it does have something to do with them when it comes to uh, certain rules uh, and certainly this cost cap thing that we're going to talk about later. So let's Um, take the calendar then as an example. People were, you know, a little bit, well, there were different opinions about the length of the the calendar mm. for next year. Is that an FIA or, or a Liberty decision? It's a liberty decision approved by, well, the World Motorsport Council and the FIA. So you've just added in another body there. Yeah, we well, the World in. Motorsport Council governs pretty much every like uh, FIA uh, motorsport, and it, it, they're, they're basically just like the meetings that they have to dot I's and cross T's and sign papers. All right, so we can get in the weeds a little bit on this one, if you like. When we say FIA, we're talking about Suleiman. If we say F1, we're talking about Domenicali. But on the FIA side, they have a Senate and they have a General Assembly. They have a president. They have multiple committees and they oversee not just Formula One, but pretty much all of European motorsports for the most part that are, that are well, even down to club level. You have to have a racing license, for example. I know, Chris, you're a 750 Motor Club fan there. And if you race there, you have to have a racing license. That license comes from the FIA and the rules and regulations about that license come from there. So if I'm F1 and I want 72 bazillion races, I go and I make those deals, but I still have to give that calendar to the FIA and the governing body of the FIA has to vote and approve that. And although it would be extremely rare for them to do anything other than just sort of rubber stamp it, it does happen on occasion. Most recently, there was a dispute about the number of sprint races where the FIA wasn't approving how many F1 wanted. So I have a question. What's stopping the uh, the Liberty side of things, the, the side of Formula One that says we want to go to these races that you said then need to go to the FIA to get that calendar ratified, for example? What's stopping them from just finding a different governing body. What is there any legal um, framework that says this has to be the FIA? Obviously, they've set themselves up as the world governing body, but not every race series in the world is governed by the FIA. So is there some scope for Formula One as an entity to, to do away with the FIA and, and maybe promote their own rules um, enforcer? Name another global governing body for motorsport. There just isn't one. But there's nothing stopping you from just setting one up, surely. I mean, <laughs> luck with that. It it has almost happened a couple of times in Formula One history. Correct me if I'm wrong. There was the was it the Foca Fota Wars? Ackleston, well, I, think- I believe, at a certain point had GP1 trademarked and ready to go. But at the end of the day, you're stuck because the tracks will lose potentially, I would think, all of their FIA approvals if they were to entertain a rogue series. In fact, if I'm really remembering correctly, 
back when the commercial and regulatory rights were under one organization, it was this sort of thing that might well have uh, caused them to split in the first place once the European Union had a careful look at some of the things that Bernie was saying to racetracks when he wanted to race there. And you have like so many different levels of what FIA approval means because they don't just approve things that race series do. They approve if you're allowed to go to a certain circuit. So every time we talk about uh, circuits having a different FIA grade, they've all been homologated a different sort of safety rating. And all Formula One tracks are a grade one. And uh, But it, it kind of works like uh, grade two is suitable for a Formula Two and grade three is suitable for a Formula Three at, at a very dumbed down uh, level. There are exceptions to that rule, Macau being uh, one of them. And not just the tracks, I mean like all the different safety equipment. So the light panels that are used at circuits, the debris fences, the concrete barriers, right down to bits of tech inside the car, like ECUs and crash data boxes and all these different kinds of things. So what we're saying at a minimum then is there's a pretty complicated relationship here, but at the moment, at least, these different bodies that are they're in charge of running Formula One are kind of interdependent. As it stands, they couldn't just get rid of the FIA and obviously Liberty own Formula One, so they're not going anywhere. They're not going to get rid of themselves. Um, so it's kind of down to us to just try and educate ourselves and, and make sure we understand who we're, who we're um, throwing our anger towards on social media when different things are published and various decisions are made. Right, so thank you very it. much for that, uh, that question, Sherry. We're going to move on to Philip Allen's question next. And Philip says, it appears that while Red Bull were dating Porsche, Red Bull were two-timing Porsche with Honda. If you were Porsche, would you look for another team or give F1 a wide berth? Um, and so this is obviously referring to the fact that there was quite a public, uh, almost announcement that Porsche were going to join Formula One with Red Bull. Um, but all the while, it was still Honda engines in the back of those Red Bulls, and it was still Red Bull courting Honda. And that's culminated in this weekend, the, the Honda logos being back on both the Alpha Tauris and the Red Bull cars. Right. So I feel, I feel quite strongly about this. Um, of course... Red Bull were looking at multiple engine partners. You would be an idiot to put all your chips in one basket because look what happened. It didn't work out and Red Bull would have been stuffed otherwise. Now, the good news is there's another four years until these new uh, power unit regulations come in. So that's why they're exploring different options and looking at long-term possibilities. Uh, from my understanding, the whole Porsche deal was wanted by the higher-ups at the Red Bull company, not just the racing team so that there was potential for Porsche to take over the entry if Red Bull ever wanted to pull the plug on the on the program, and there would be someone to, to take it, which is not something the racing team took very well. And uh, that's why there was maybe a bit of resistance to the Porsche deal. In terms of Porsche, Red Bull was there really, realistically, their only way into Formula One, because they wanted to partner with a team that already had an engine facility, i.e. Red Bull powertrains, which currently no other racing team that isn't a manufacturer has. So they're, they're not going to look at Formula One now. I think they're just going to focus on their World Endurance Championship, Le Mans and uh, Daytona uh, programs instead, which I think is going to be better for them in the long run. In terms of Honda's logos suddenly appearing back on the car, well, HRC, the Honda Racing Company, a subsidiary of Honda has been on those cars all season long. It has not been a secret that Red Bull powertrains and HRC are working together to current, to build the current engines and Honda's appearance on these, uh, on these cars. Now the actual Honda, not HRC timing in with their home Grand Prix. To me, there is no news here. There's, absolutely nothing the the press release that went out said there are going to be logos and they're having their own version of thanksgiving and people seem to be flipping lids about this matt so uh, over here we'd say you know all hat no cattle when it comes to the honda news right now and what you're looking at essentially is interestingly chris says in partnership but right now honda is fully contracted to build the power units for Red Bull. Red Bull aren't building anything on their own right now that's going into the back of their cars. They have produced a prototype V6 that they have fired up, which is which is a big step. 
and in fact, examining this news a little more closely, what the rumors are that I've seen in print is mainly that going forward, Honda might become responsible for producing the hybrid portion of the unit, which will inevitably be the more complex one to produce, and that Red Bull would produce the internal combustion engine on their own premises in um, Milton Keynes. Now, what is interesting to me about the Porsche deal is that it was, as Chris said, I think it was rumored to give them long-term stability um, as, as, as the longer-term plans of Red Bull were not necessarily always going to be in Formula One, whereas you take someone like Porsche, it would be. But I don't think Porsche were necessarily of the mind to build an entire power unit from scratch. So they were very much going to be leveraging Red Bull and the facility they'd already built. And it was almost a bit of a branding exercise, especially when we consider the fact that Porsche just went public a week or two ago. And I think that the F1 deal was meant to sort of help with their stock price initially. And so, no, I don't see another immediate route in for Porsche as a, as of right now. I don't know what's changed with Porsche since they were making LMP1 uh, engines at Le Mans for their, for their 919, uh, which were about 1,000 horsepower and about 50% of that came from hybrid power, a lot more sophisticated than what is being used in Formula 1. Yet now, when it comes to entering in 2026, they say they don't have the facilities to make such an engine. That's why they wanted to partner with Red Bull uh, powertrains, and you look at what the uh, the current regulations for the top class of Le Mans are, they are much simpler uh, power units, still hybrids, but much, much simpler than what was there in the LMP1 days, for example. So do we think, perhaps, just to, to maybe put a lid on this, that Porsche thought there was an easy route into Formula 1, and so the, the VW Audi group could kind of they could stomach having two of their brands competing because one of them was going to benefit from quite a lot of help in, in getting in. And maybe Red Bull thought that that they, um, maybe they were worth a bit more. Um, and, and Porsche now just won't look back because that, that easier route is just no longer available. Well, neither of them was looking for a full entry as in to make a car and an engine. We know Audi is just coming in making an engine for uh, Sauber. But there's been no problem with them competing against each other in uh, in Le Mans before. In fact, before uh, Audi pulled the plug on the Le Mans program to focus on Formula One, they were going to be in there together. They compete against each other in uh, all GT3 uh, racing. So I don't think there's a problem with the brands um, competing against each other. And I think in terms of a simple way into Formula One, there's no simple way into to Formula One. And uh, they've they've found that out very quickly but i think it was more just taking advantage of an opportunity that presented itself it's the goldilocks conundrum red bull's approach was just right for porsche it wasn't too much it wasn't too little it was just right now that it's gone it's it's a problem and i just wanted to throw in there the detail that to my understanding the ultimate derailment came with the amount of control porsche wanted over the racing team itself not just uh, the upper management structure stock-wise, but Porsche wanted to be more controlling of the race team than the race team was willing to accept. Well, thank you for your, your detailed knowledge on that, guys, because I would have struggled to answer, answer that one well on my own. Um, so there's been, um, there's been some news, or maybe the better way to put it is there hasn't been some news today about a juicy topic that I'm sure most of our listeners um, are at least interested to hear the outcome of. So before we before we answer a question about that, how many of the listeners do you think were, were sat on Twitter today waiting for an announcement from the FIA, and all they got was uh, something about Suzuka, um, saying that there's a there's a race at Suzuka this weekend. I, I certainly was. I got up and the first thing I did this morning was tweet about this supposed announcement, which never came. Um, so we have a question from Lucas, and Lucas says. If there's a significant cost cost cap breach found, do you think we could see the banning of people from the F1 paddock like we did with Crashgate? So I don't think it will go that far because uh, Crashgate was a clear violation of uh, just being a decent human being and uh, but not least safety of a driver, of marshals, 
of spectators. A cost cap, breaching a cost cap isn't anywhere near the same level. So I don't think we'll see um, bannings. It's it's interesting, this whole thing, and I kind of have refused to talk about it at this point um, because there has been no news and I'm getting sick to death of people calling for heads to roll when we don't even know if there has been a breach from any team whatsoever. So if there is found to be a any breach i don't th- i don't care if a minor or significant for me that's an illegal car and let's say if red bull has breached the 2021 cost cap that is an illegal car but this well, of I course th- creates a whole mess because what are you gonna you cannot for the sake of the championship and Formula One staying alive. You cannot start taking championships away nine months after they've been won, but you can't just let them keep it either. And for me, there is no winning in this situation. I think just before we go to Matt, I just want to address that you say that that's an illegal car and that and it's a big deal, but there's already been a lot of effort to kind of downplay how much a minor breach would matter and that it, you know, effectively it's a, a procedural thing and everyone could have gone over a little bit, but, but at the same time, we've got, um, we've got quotes from people like Toto Wolf and, and, um, and several other teams saying that even a minor breach, even a, a handful of millions would be enough at the current time to, to go towards a lot of development, which could be very much race and championship influencing. So it's kind of very contradictory messages we're getting from people in the paddock. Matt. So happily enough, I've actually gone and read through a big chunk of these regulations. I'm not going to be um, absolutely perfect in them, but with regards to people being tossed out, that's an easy one. The list of sanctions simply does not include that as a possibility for what is termed a minor breach which would be less than 5% of the cost cap set with a fixed currency amount at the beginning of the season. Um, the It's going to be either a financial penal, penalty, possibly a loss of some, possibly a loss of some wind tunnel time. Uh, maybe if there are aggravating factors, uh, what they would call a minor sporting penalty, which could be loss of championship or driver points or suspension from specific races. Um, and then if it's what they call a material breach, more than 5%, they start with deduction of constructors' championship points and, and go on from there, including being excluded for the cha- from the championship. And I know, Chris, just to address the one thing you brought up about taking away this year's, last year's champion this year, just so everybody knows, the statute of limitations on breaking this agreement is five years. They reserve the right to, re- to look at it up to five years later really? and penalize you for violating the agreement. So in 1999, Michael Schumacher still could have had his uh, 94 and 95 t- titles taken away from him. Interesting. Yep, that's good. So let me, let me throw out something which I, I think is a pretty big problem with the way this has all been framed. The, the difference between no breach and the maximum minor breach is vast. So if you went over by a pound, or if you went over by 5% of the budget, those are very, very different scenarios, yet they are all classified as a minor breach. And one of them could have made effectively zero difference to your championship and your your car for the year that that you make the breach and the following year if the development um, carries over. And the other one could have made a massive difference. And People with different agendas, people who would who would like, and let's just say if it was one of the teams that's been cited so far in the media, if it was allegedly Red Bull, then some people would really like them to be penalized harshly and other people would like to, you know, really minimize that it's a, a big deal at all and that it's really kind of just a procedural error in effect. So do you think that the vagueness of the rules that apparently have been worded this way in order to deter people from breaching have actually given those teams leeway to think they can probably get away with a breach and it won't be classed as such a big deal. Well, there was a game the system, and that I have no problem with. That is what Formula One is all about. People game the regulations all uh, the time. This is just another regulation for them to find loopholes in. Um, For example, I think if it is Red Bull, it is going to come down to what files under the the race team, which is limited, and Red Bull powertrains, which is not limited. So 
I think in 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 terms of that, my main issue is that if you give them a slap on the wrist, which for me is anything other than chucking them out of the championship for the year that they uh, violated the rules, then they will just all be breaching the regs. And he said, you give them a fine. They're like, well, we'll just factor that into the budget. And that'll be, that'll be that because the big teams can afford to do that. What I will say though, is I don't think there's any coincidence that this is all coming about in the run up to Honda's and, and in a sense, Red Bull's second home Grand Prix. Well, just, just to address that before we go to Matt, I I think it is a coincidence because this is just the time that these, these um, certifications were due to be issued, although they seem to have been delayed before now and were also delayed today, which I'd like to ask you about in a moment. But just before we go on to why we think that we didn't get an announcement today, why we think this has been pushed back even further, uh, Matt had a point. Uh, yeah, I did. And it's the exact point that uh, Chris is speaking to. Why would any team not calculate that I could go seven point four nine 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 point nine nine dollars over and only be in minor breach. So I will just spend the money. And the answer again lies directly in the regulations. Examples of aggravating factors include A any element of bad faith, dishonesty, willful concealment, or fraud. B multiple breaches of these regulations in the reporting period in question. All right, you're done like a dinner. If you show up with that number to me as a judge and I look at it, I'm immediately taking A and B and saying, you've got aggravating factors. You are definitely going to be losing championship points here. You're going to have a very hard time convincing anyone who knows about numbers that 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 neither of those would apply in this. It was just coincidentally $1 less than I was allowed to spend. It's not really going to happen. My uh, my issue with that, though, Matt, is that despite Ross Braun um, saying that these regulations have teeth, we have recent examples of, of, and I won't go into specifics, but of clear rules breaches, which wouldn't have stood up in a court of law. But F1 isn't governed like a court of law, and they can effectively kind of bend their own interpretations on, on even pretty clearly written regulations like that. Okay, so do you mind if I, I, I again just get into a little more detail? Go so the initial body that looks at this is the cost cap administration. And they can go to you as a team and say, we determined you have had a breach here. You as a team can negotiate a settlement and then you're done. If you don't like that, they can refer it to an adjudication panel of independent judges some of which have to be nominated by no less than five F1 teams agreeing on the nominee, minimum of three, maximum of six judges. And they will make a determination either by um, majority or a unanimous vote as to whether or not you're guilty. So in going that route, you expose yourself to more peril because they might decide more independently than the administration that runs it. Should you not be happy, you can then go to the International Court of Appeals. And as far as precedents go, because I know Chris needs to get a word in edgewise here, but as far as precedents go, we have McLaren being thrown out of the championship. You can throw Red Bull out of the championship or dock them enough points to be second and not touch Max winning the championship. And I'd expect that if it does come down to a points deduction, that's probably what we'd see. So... Just oh, just in terms of that though, Matt, McLaren was thrown out of the constructors' championship, and although on paper Lewis and Fernando still finished second and third, we all know they were not allowed to win that world championship. Oh, okay. And Mark uh, in the chat room, hi patrons, thanks for joining us, um, has reminded me of something I was uh, talking about with a few journalists last week when the uh, story first emerged, which is that if my front wing is one millimeter too wide, I will be disqualified from any race or session that I try to enter that car in. And uh, I don't think the financial regulations should be any different. I just want to point out that Matt's um, suggestion that what he thinks the penalty might be, um, he said 
demoting them to second in the constructors championship several ifs i need to point out with several ifs including if it's even red bull granted uh, if if the team in question is Red Bull, then they didn't win the Constructors' Championship anyway. So it would effectively be a non-penalty. They've even publicly said they don't care as much about the Constructors' Championship, and, and I don't think most people do. So even a total disqualification from, from last year's standings, or even this year's Constructors' standings, surely wouldn't really be much of an incentive to not do this, especially given the fact that they would then keep the thing they really wanted, which was the driver's title. So... Um, I just want to ask, before we move on to another question, what do you guys think about the delay? Because as far as we understood, we were supposed to hear something today and it hasn't come out. Um, So without an actual breach, if there wasn't a breach of some sort, surely we would have just had an answer today. So there must be some kind of discussions going on about that. Now, I'll tell you what it, I'll tell you exactly what it is. It's all going to come under what comes under the cost cap, because we know there are a lot of exclusions to the cost cap. It's primarily focused at car development, but things like driver's salaries and, uh, as we mentioned earlier, power unit development currently uh, will be in uh, 26, I think, if I remember rightly, um, is is not you know limited. It's all just about, well, you spent this and technically we think it comes under the cost cap. Oh, well, we don't think it does. Would you like a list of exactly what falls under? The short list, not the long list. Give us a short list. Yeah, go on. Marketing. Heritage asset activities, non-F1 activities, human resource, finance, and legal. Power units, by the way, power unit expenses from the team side absolutely do have to be, absolutely do have to be included. If I'm Red Bull powertrains, though, yes, that is a separate pool, and I know you're going to make that point. Yeah, so just for clarification, let's take uh, Mercedes. They can develop their engine. But if I'm Williams and I'm buying the engine, that comes under my cost cap. Well, and when you say Mercedes, we are not, we are talking about Bricksworth here. Mercedes HPP, not Mercedes AMG Patronus, the Formula One team. Wouldn't it be hilarious if after all this, it was actually Alfa Romeo? Anyway, (laughs) let's move on to another question from Martin Dooley, who asks on a completely different topic. Um, other series, such as touring cars, have mechanisms to try to balance performance. In his head, this is a good thing because it stops one team being too dominant. But if you get too far ahead of the other, uh, others um, to get a boost, you can get pegged back. This should help reduce costs in his head at least. Now, I've got my own opinions on um, success ballast or, or neutering teams um, who, who start to get ahead of the pack in Formula One. And we kind of already are starting to do this with the resource restrictions, with the wind tunnel time and the CFD teraflop restrictions. But my opinion, and tell me whether you think I'm I'm an idiot for this, is that if we start doing this as they would in touring cars, for example, or, or balance of performance in GT racing, then we might as well just have a spec series, which I'm also fine with. Okay, so I disagree with your idea that Formula One should be a spec series, but I'm I'm with where you're going because the thing is, those things exist in other sports to make them more, or other series, to make them more exciting so that they are more marketable and to entice you to watch them because people watch Formula One because it's the pinnacle. Why am I going to watch, you know, some sub-league? You know, people buy tickets to the Premier League and the World Cup, not to go and watch Sutton United, uh, close to where I live, play... AFC Wimbledon, or I don't even know if those guys are in the same league, but you get my point. Formula One is supposed to be the best of the best, and it is an engineering sport, first and foremost. It is a team sport. I know we all put the focus on the drivers' championship and everything, but it is a team engineering sport. And if you suddenly introduce those kinds of things, suddenly for me, it isn't Formula One anymore. Matt. Best of the best of the best, sir. I'm um, sorry. Quoting movie lines today. Um, F1 already does this. Has done. For ages. Fiddle bricks. Mass dampers. Das. Brick. You name it. Any number of innovative solutions to engineering problems are generally looked at very rapidly by the FIA if they're perceived to give uh, an advantage that will be expensive for other teams to catch up to, magically, they're ruled illegal. You're allowed to keep them to the end of the season, and then they take away your toy, and you have to come up with some other kind of toy 
to uh, still stay ahead of your competitors. But to me, that is fundamentally different to success ballast or success time penalty or balance of performance. If I went into a Formula One race and we're suddenly thinking, oh, God, Red Bull are only allowed to have 57 points of downforce on their front wing, but Mercedes can have an eight-second turbo boost while Red Bull can only have four. All of that, I think, is fine for GT racing, and they do it exceptionally well, but I think in Formula One, that's just never going to work. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So I have to tend to agree with Chris here on this one because there is a subtle but I think fundamental difference between having it written into the regulations that by performing better, you're going to be artificially pegged back and the team innovating and coming up with something wild and wonderful that gives them a performance boost, which is then regulated against later on. I think there's still very real scope for teams to legally and without going too wild with their inventions, build a better car, set the car up better, have better aero development without having any particular device like DAS or anything like that, which is then later outlawed. So I, I, I see Chris's point. I also take the fact that Matt says there are mechanisms in play in Formula One to try and do a similar thing, to try and stop this from getting out of hand. And I think we've probably got a reasonable balance at the moment because the way with, with the restrictions on resources, wind tunnel time, etc., that we mentioned, it's more about doing as well as possible with what you're given. Really be excellent with your engineering within a framework and it should still just keep the barriers a little bit like having the bumpers up when you go bowling, just to stop it kind of going too far either way. Well, what better example could we have than the raising of the floor edges going into next season? That's going to help a lot of teams out, and that's not going to do Red Bull a whole lot of favors. Now, you could argue that it's entirely and totally for driver safety, and I think that's a reasonable argument when they decided, when they formulated this. but. They didn't have to, based on looking at the cars right now. That wasn't a necessity. They're going to do it anyway. And it's just going to make Red Bull's life a little more difficult, I think, personally, and bring the rest of the teams a little bit closer. So just before we move on to another different question, I just want to give you my manifesto for why I think, and I'm going to get a lot of heat for this, but why I think Formula One should just, you know, cut their losses and become a spec series. And, and this is it, right? So I'm ready to be completely shot down in flames here. All of these rules, all, all of the regulations that are being framed in recent times, whether it's budget or, or technical regulations, seem to be aimed towards making the cars as close as possible. What we want to see is close fights on track, close battles with lots of teams in the hunt for a win. Why not just make all the cars the same? You can still paint them different colors. You can still set them up differently. But fundamentally, all of the teams have a fair shot then at, at winning the race if they do the best job. It will be cheaper. The people at home largely won't know the difference still between the cars. Um, and yes, we'll lose some engineering um, interest when, when we watch it. Those of us who do enjoy seeing technical innovations 
we're going to lose that. But Formula One isn't the cutting edge of technology in every area anyway. We already have a lot of spec parts. And the engines, as Chris mentioned earlier on, aren't, aren't even as, as advanced as um, endurance prototype cars from five, ten years ago. So why not just make them all the same and have really good racing instead of this constant drive to to stop the engineers from making better cars than, than one another? I could just move straight on to the next question so you can't answer, but I will allow you to speak. <laughs> Thank you. So this will be Brad's last uh, show in the hosting chair. He just lost those privileges. And I'll tell you for why. Brad, when you give 10 engineers a problem, they will all come up with different solutions. What you are asking for is to everyone to have the same solution. Boring. If you want to watch the spec series, watch F2, watch F3, because that's great racing, but it's not Formula One. No response from Matt. Matt obviously agrees with I, me entirely. I, I, I'm just sitting here marveling that you would even suggest such a thing. The only, uh, you're basically suggesting Formula IndyCar, which, yeah, great driving, great racing, love it. But in terms of the engineering, you were, you were getting rid of what is, in terms of lap time, 90% of the championship is the engineering behind the cars, the fact that they are bespoke for the most part. For the important parts, for most of the bits you can see, they're absolutely designed from scratch, including things like fasteners and stuff that you wouldn't even think about. So yeah, if you want to get rid of everyone that enjoys the engineering challenge of it and seeing those solutions, then yeah, sure, go ahead. You want to get rid of all those different side pods we saw at the beginning of the year? Yeah, be my guest. But uh, I think you're maybe throwing out the uh, old baby with the bathwater there. So I just want to say that in my opinion, the majority of the millions of people watching Formula One would enjoy it more if it was a closer fight on track every weekend than if the side pods looked a bit different. That's uh, I just I just don't see how that's even remotely comparable. And it's I have to say, even, I've enjoyed almost... IndyCar this year, watching that. I've enjoyed the racing in IndyCar vastly more than I have in Formula One. All right, Chris, fine, the, you go. Well, then enjoy the IndyCar then, but it's not Formula One, is it? I don't watch... Formula One to watch 50,000 overtakes a lap. You're watching Formula One to watch the best drivers in the best cars run by the best teams and built by the best mechanics and engineers in the world going toe to toe. There is no guarantee in any of that that it is going to be anywhere near close. The vast majority of championships are not down to the wire. We were really spoiled last year. Okay. And it is not usually like that. And I think it's wrong to expect that from Formula One, which is why I also like to, on my weekend off, watch touring cars and the support package if I want to just watch some good racing or watch the IndyCar, you know. But don't watch Formula One expecting it to be something it isn't. And I'm just surprised that in all of those words, Chris forgot to point out, like, did you just not watch Singapore? Was there not close racing at the end of the entire thing between Leclerc and Perez? It was mesmerizing, especially because we did have to wait almost a whole race to see it evolve. I mean, uh, yeah, Formula One is its own thing. And I think we will continue to get closer and closer racing the deeper we get into this regulation set. I'm not sure that that level of adjustment is needed. I, th I think we were really close at the end of the last regulations, and I'm willing to bet by the time we get to 2026, it's going to be even more amazing. Well, I'd just like to point out that I was playing devil's advocate, and, and I am oh, okay. one of those people sure. Whatever, Brad. who enjoys a slow burner, and I've always loved Formula One for the innovation. But all I'm saying is, don't expect super close racing and, and complain about the lack of racing if all the cars are different. So let's move on to a question about close racing. Um, and it's from Eve. Eve asks, bearing in mind that 26 of 31, almost 80% of the previous Formula One races that have been won from the front row at Suzuka, do you think the new closer racing philosophy and altered aerodynamics will affect the race on this fast, narrow circuit this year? So we've seen, we've seen better closer racing. You know, at some circuits that we would have expected this year, bigger gaps between the cars even if ultimately it hasn't led to an overtaking fest, we have seen cars able to be closer to each other and give us that anticipation and sometimes possibility of a move happening. So, so will that happen at Suzuka as well? I think Suzuka is another one of these circuits where these kind of cars are going to excel 
because it is a super, super fast circuit. And these cars were designed to reduce weight in these high speed corners. There's really only two slow speed corners, the hairpin and the uh, chicane at the end of the lap. The rest of it is pedal to the metal, super fast, uh, where, you know, a single seater, a car that relies on downforce excels. And because the wake has been huge from the cars in the past, we haven't seen maybe the best races from Suzuka, but this is, it's going to be like, you know, Austria or like Silverstone, uh, for example, where these cars are going to come into their own. I tend to agree. Suzuka has always been one of my favorite circuits to watch racing on, even if it hasn't always provided the very, very best, closest racing because of its design. But I think it's fundamentally a challenge to the driver, a challenge to the engineering. And with the altered aerodynamic characteristics of these cars, I am genuinely curious to see what happens through the S's, through the, the S's, for example. Or, um, you know, around 130R, there are long radius corners. There's fast direction changes, which I know will be challenging because of the weight. But fundamentally, we should see cars better able to keep up under those circumstances. And I believe, I don't think there's going to be two DRS zones. I think there's only going to be one. So if we see overtakes, they're probably not going to be as easy as we have seen them at certain other tracks. Chris? But I think that's good because DRS has been overpowered on a lot of circuits. And I know there was a worry that DRS wasn't going to be as effective uh, with these new cars. And I think that has been proven. But there is nothing that bores me more during a Grand Prix than just watching a driver press a button that does the overtake for them. And I like the fact that drivers have to work for an overtake. So in Singapore, when you were watching cars with DRS spend multiple laps behind a car, that was great because they're having to work for it. So I think just addressing the lack of overtaking at Singapore, I think this was actually a bit more down to the weather than, than anything else. Yeah. Cars couldn't afford to drive offline and and make a pass that they normally would have been able to make reasonably easily. And we saw it happen with Hamilton, we saw it happen with Verstappen, probably a few other people where you go slightly offline and the grip difference between offline and online is vast and the driver you're overtaking just has a huge advantage and you can't outbreak them. So I think Suzuka's overtaking will largely be dependent on if it rains. I mean, are we expecting rain? I haven't seen any forecast this weekend. Matt's nodding. So yes, we are. We do often get yep. rain at Suzuka. So we'll be in a similar boat if that happens, particularly because it's, it is narrow and there's a lot of jeopardy. The barriers aren't right next to the track like they are at Singapore, but they're close enough that you're still going to hit them if you go off. Um, and with these big wide cars, it's, um, it's tricky to thread them through any kind of gap anyway, especially if that gap's wet and the racing line isn't quite as wet. Uh, so the forecast I saw was for a very messy Friday, cold, rainy, probably dry on Saturday. Sunday, the rain's coming in the evening, but they're not sure exactly when. And I just say there could not possibly be a better forecast for a Formula One Grand Prix weekend than the possibility of rain in the last 20 or 30 minutes of the race. And of course, we arrives in We've seen sessions suspended until the following day at Suzuka with typhoons and really bad weather. So hopefully it's not quite as bad as that, that we get an early ending race. But as you say, it could spice things up dramatically if the rain suddenly comes right at the end. Yeah, it, it could. And I, I did want to mention about these cars, I discovered an interesting fact. I, I did some research into Max and his fuel problems in qualifying. And in watching the onboards, he was actually told by his engineer that he had enough battery to do two successive fast laps at Singapore. And my supposition there was that it was very much down to the track conditions. In other words, because the track was slippery, even with the dry line, that you simply couldn't, A, you couldn't use the battery as much as you normally would because you just overpower the rear wheels. And also, uh, I think obviously with all the corners and a lot more braking, it probably recharged faster than at most circuits. But if the if the circuit is slippery, um, that could also be an interesting 
wrinkle because it removes a lot of the power sensitivity of the track, meaning that cars that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be competitive might actually be able to sneak their way in, especially if they don't explode, like an Alpine, for example. So I, for one, am looking forward to Suzuka because it's one of those old school tracks that, you know, it's a real, it feels organic. It feels like it's, it's been hewn from the ground. It's got elevation change and, and every kind of corner you can imagine. Um, and I, I've got really no idea what the different performances of the, the different teams is going to be here, especially if we've got a sprinkle of rain. Before we move on to another question, Chris, you've got one more thing to say? Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about uh, actual racing and not whether Red Bull spent too much money on crisps. Well, you're not going to get that since we've had the decision delayed. So we've got another weekend of, of talking all about it. I've heard a conspiracy theory that Red Bull have argued their way into not having a breach announced until after Max has been crowned champion this weekend so as not to sully the celebrations and leave all that messy stuff for afterwards. But uh, After uh, Honda's home Grand Prix as well. Precisely. So... Let's move on to another question. Ian Turner wants to talk about the team principles on TV. He says, in a sport where tiny margins can win or lose races and championships, why is there such a discrepancy between the amount of TV time given or taken by the team principles? Without being unkind to any, any particular individual, we often get in-race insight from only a subset of the teams, and all too often this is quite naturally used for political purposes rather than true fan value add. So... I think he's probably right. We do see certain principles more than others or, or team figureheads. And I would say it's probably largely because we care about certain teams more than others. The teams at the front will probably get more airtime. But there does seem to be one individual who gets a little bit more than others. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Right. So, yes, we care more about the top teams in in general. They are the headline uh, acts it's why you know the during the race it tends to focus on the leaders more yeah more than more than anything even if there's more happening further back they're always going to focus on what's happening up front um but the reason you might not see other teams is simply because they have no interest in uh in in doing that or they think it detracts from the job a little bit too much i mean we've seen what a team principal uh goes through during a race sat on the pit wall and imagine you're then you know, in your crucial moment and you've got someone from Sky going, oh, do you mind if we talk to you for five minutes now? And it's like some some people just don't want that and would rather focus on the job. It's not box office, is it? Box office is Christian Horner out there defending his team against another scandal that they've been involved in and, you know, fighting and, and you know, standing up front and making sure that the world knows their position. It's not really about the the chief mechanic of... I don't know. What what are Sauber called nowadays? Matt? Alpha. Alpha. But I the know, other Alpha. Was joking. Not that Alpha, the other Alpha. No, I, 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 I disagree. I think we hear from Honorota, Horner, Toto, Bonato, and Steiner, because he's just a character now in the F1 show. But I, I, I agree. It would be nice to hear occasionally from some of the other team principals, but I think I can also explain why they don't bother to a lot of the times. Because a lot of the times, they're going to be either asking you about how you're doing in the race. Well, well, gee, Franz Toast, how are you doing in the race? Well, we're out of the points again. You know, one or both of our driver's cars has exploded and or ended up in a wall. Oopsies. So there's not a lot to say there. The other thing you could ask about is say, oh, gee, Franz Toast, junior team to Red Bull, what do you think about this whole cost cap thing and understand that all of these team principals at that end of the grid are buying their power units from Ferrari, <laughs> from basically Red Bull, Honda, or, or from Mercedes. And so whatever they say is going to be some reflection of what they have been told to say and oftentimes vote in meetings by the by the politically those who have hegemony over them and there's a whole bunch of big words for you but toto is the classic example he never does the mid-race stuff with sky he doesn't even sit on the pit wall so that just goes to show he doesn't want to do it or mercedes doesn't want him to do it because he's focusing on other things more important things we only hear from toto when he's shouting at the race director 
angrily. But not not anymore, because we're not allowed to hear those things. So I'm going to give away my age here, but I'm I'm old enough to remember when it was always Martin Whitmarsh or or Ron Dennis when, when McLaren were featuring more at the front. So I think these things do come in cycles. But at the moment, we certainly do have a couple of people who we hear from more than others. Um, Kurt, I'm going to I'm going to absolutely butcher this name now, but Kurt Feuerstack asks, controversial. Do you think it's time for Haas to move on from Steiner? I know he effectively created the team, but it seems like whenever they have a good car, they start strong and they fall off so quickly. So Haas do have this habit of of coming out of the block strongly and then falling back as development continues through the year. I always wonder how they then get back to the front over the following winter, but they seem to to manage to to leap forward. Um, do we need to get rid of Steiner? I don't think making heads roll at the top is necessarily the way forward. Clearly, they are very restricted on what they can do financially, which always tends to be the problem. But I think the reason they sort of tend to start with a good car is because they get most of it from Ferrari. And so in a relative terms of the midfield, then they they are quite good, but all the other teams develop and Haas falls behind consistently. This year in particular, because it was a brand new set of uh, regulations and Haas had spent, had probably invested more into this car than some other midfield teams because like we know 2020 and 21 were basically a write-off for that team and there were other teams that were having problems obviously McLaren had major brake issues in the early part of the season Williams was very basic a lot of cars were extremely overweight um, as well and they were able to take advantage of that everyone else has improved I would say I would agree with Chris annoyingly (laughs) <laughs> that that a large part of this is just down to budget and has I th- I'm not even sure if they're at the cost cap. I know they're spending like they have a cost cap, but I, I believe that they're in general much more budget limited than any team other than maybe Alpha Tauri or Alpha, other Alpha, or Williams, or Williams. Although Williams has had a pretty substantial increase in performance, I'm not sure mm. they're. I'm not sure they're at the same level of restriction and going forward will probably be okay. Chris, Chris seems to think he knows better than me here. Have have they had an upturn in performance or have they just recently been going to tracks that suit the one characteristic that car seems to have, which is that it's quick in a straight line, i.e. Spa, Monza, where they Uh, did very well. And oddly enough, didn't do too well at Zandvoort or Singapore. I think they chose the tracks they thought they could do well at based on the information and development they'd had over the previous seasons. Yeah. And I think they've maximized it, which is a far sight better than they had had been doing. So that to me speaks of some investment. But, but just go back to um, Haas um, real quick, because yeah. I know you want to defend them big time because you I love do. them. Um, and I don't, I don't blame you. I, I, you know, I, I like seeing Haas um, do well, um, but the fact that they had to hire Nikita Mazepin uh, shows the financial situation they were in because they were at the risk of going bust as a team. And clearly a lot of forward progress in that area hasn't been made. So they've taken advantage of a situation at the beginning of this year. Now the question is going to be, well, what's the long-term plan? How do we get more money into this team? Well, see, and, and this is this is where I get really interested because in my discussion with Summers, we talked about there were two approaches. There were some teams that brought a few very big developments at specific points in the season, and then there were others who who trickled stuff on. Haas was a, definitely a team that showed up with a car that was very, very quick right out of the box. They were immediately competitive where many of their peers weren't, and this was an excellent strategy for them as they had planned all along, along the lines of Ferrari, but much more slowly, to really only bring a major development um, at Spa, I believe is when they showed up with it. So they made a lot of hay, however, by spending time understanding the car and getting better at setting it up, which is why they were competitive. Most, Most of why they are where they are is more down to operational issues than it was down to the performance of the engineering of the car and to a small extent, the drivers himself. Speaking of the engineering on the Haas, I have a question, probably for Matt, although I'm sure you both know the answer to this. 
is the car still largely designed by Delara? Do they still farm it out to Delara, or do they have the has have their own design team in house nowadays? So I believe the way it works is Haas do have their own design team, but what they have the ability to do is flexibly add extra team members from Delara for development purposes. So they essentially have floaters at Delara that are that are attached to the Formula One project, and at times of high demand, they will join and assist. Okay, so not Ferrari. There's not Ferrari team members embedded in there like like they used to be rumored to be. Uh, oh, well, I'm sure there are. Th- there was no rumor. It, it was an absolute fact. Ferrari sent a bunch of people to Haas, and then Haas sent them back. And then the FIA said, that was really clever of you, and now no team can do it again. <laughs> they changed the rules. So let's move on to a question regarding safety cars. I saw a couple of questions, actually. There were two or three about the use of the safety car. And we've got one here from Jim SemQ, and apologies if I've pronounced that incorrectly, Jim. He asks, why is no one talking about the lack of, sa- lack of cars bunched up behind the safety car? Where were they? I only noticed three cars nearby and nobody else. Other races, they're all very close. The reason the safety car's out there is to catch all the cars up so the track crew has time to clear the issue in safety. Now, I think some of the issues here are around the fact that people will take the safety car's deployment as an opportunity to dive into the pits which breaks up the field. The safety car also seems to try and pick up the leader rather than just any old car and keeps waving people through until to, he gets to the leader. So is there, is there scope for the safety car rules to be changed slightly? And I'm not, I'm not talking for a moment about ending the race under safety cars or getting into that. More about a, a normal in-race safety car where there's debris to be cleared up and we need the cars all bunched up. But we want, it to, we want that to happen quickly. Right. You can't just catch the first car that comes out of the pit lane because suddenly, and this very nearly happened at Monza, the race leader will have a lap over the entire field. And then you'll be moaning about the fact that the race has been ruined. Okay, One clear, simple way to speed up the safety car progress, forget lapped cars unlapping themselves. It is a needless, pointless exercise. Matt? My very simple solution which would only not work in the event of a crash that blocks the pit lane, would be very simply to require the moment the safety car is deployed, the leader, the first time they come around to the pits, drives through the pits, follows the safety car out, and every subsequent driver also comes through the pits. Then you have everybody coming in in the order they are. If you wanted to deal with lapped cars at the same time, if you're a lapped car, you have to pull into your pit box and wait until you're given a separate signal to leave. And then you have all the cars in order and basically a single lap. That would be my that would be my off the off the cuff suggestion for it. But I think why you don't see them more bunched up is because of um Mugello. And if we all remember the race there under the safety car and we remember the accident that happened, the cars are given a leeway of 10 car links that they have to maintain. But what will happen as they become entrained behind the safety car is that they will seek to time those, time that distance so that they can keep their tires and their brakes warm. And if you think about 20 cars, 10 car links apart, they don't look really bunched up. But for the purposes of the marshals working on track, they are once they get there. So I think it's also maybe just TV makes it look a little worse than it actually is. Some cars go even further back than 10 car lengths occasionally. No, no. What you, uh, what you want to is, is to take advantage on the safety car restart and try and get a jump on your uh, opponent. But what that like Mugello situation, we see it in Baku as well, is when you have the restart that takes place on a long um, straight. And in Singapore, for example, where there were quite big gaps after the safety car had uh, come in, I think was more to do with um, uh, with the concertina effect in that last sector, but also because of the uh, the weather conditions that we saw as well, where it's kind of all too easy in a sudden, you know, burst of uh, burst of power where you've got cold tires, the car's completely unprepared, 
And in this situation, the result is exaggerated. I don't know, you get like a big swapper on or something, but the car behind is not allowed to overtake you. So they will just have to sit behind while the rest of the field storms off. So are we saying that at the moment, although it seems like there's a bit of a faff in collecting all the cars together and safety car periods do seem like they just go on for a long time. Are we saying that if it's a situation where something needs to be cleared up and we do need the cars bunched up together, we don't have an alternative. We we don't have an easy, better version of this. Well, well, we, I mean, there's a VSC, but like, I, I, I don't think they go on that long. An incident takes as long to clear up as it does to, to clear up. What bugs me is how long it takes to get going again because of this unlapping yourself rule. There's not a lot you can do to fairly put the field back together when the safety car comes out, but let's not waste another three laps letting the lap cars get ahead. Let's just let a few of them through. Maybe that's the solution. So, guys, I think we're probably going to end it there. So we're at the end of the mailbag for today, but... Thanks so much for all your questions, uh, and thanks to my panel here as well. Remember, you can always email us using the address feedback at mistapex.net and follow the panel. Follow Chris at Chris on Racing and Matt at MattPT55 on Twitter. Uh, you can also follow me. I'm at Bradley Philpot, and you can check out my latest YouTube video. The link's in the show notes from the Through the Visor series. This week, I was taking a look at why drivers take what's called the karting line and what we mean by the karting line when you hear the commentators talk about that in the wet. So go click on that. Spanners will be back at 8pm UK time on Sunday to lead the Japanese Grand Prix race review. But until then, work hard, be kind and have fun. This was Mistake Apex Podcast. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.